Psalm 50. The mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces and there will be none there to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great, great to see you and great to hear you. I hope you had a nice legal holidays. Thank you, Dinus and Viva, for opening up your home for the church family. And those of you who stayed in Riga, um, I hope you enjoyed a slightly more quiet, quieter, you know, quieter city life here um, over the weekend. Um, it's particularly great to see some of our long-term friends visiting with us today. Welcome. And... Um, and hope our time together here now um, in God's word is going to be really profitable. So let me, uh, let me uh, kick off with a question. A question is, what is God like? Uh, when you hear a question, uh, maybe when you ask a question to uh, some of your friends, what is God like? What comes up in your mind? Well, there is a famous story that depicts God as an elephant. People of various religions are depicted as blindfolded, touching different parts of uh, the elephant, and so trying to guess what God is like. And so one religion says God is like the legs. Another religion says, uh, no, God is like the nose. 
and so on. The lesson here is simple. There is ultimately one God for all religions. He is so big that none of the people have the full picture of what God is like. And therefore, we can't really know God. Now, have you come across, across this il big illustration? Are you familiar with it? Uh, would that be how your friends from, I don't know, university or work view God? Big, unknowable, and ultimately impersonal. Not worthy, worthy to be worshipped, really. I mean, no wonder our, some of our non-Christian friends see no problem in combining church with worldly living. Now, flying back from Poland just um, a few weeks ago, I sat next to a Greek man who was going to spend a weekend with his cousin in Riga. And upon learning that I am um, a local, he wanted to gather as much information about the Riga nightlife as possible. I said to him honestly, well, that my, um, my knowledge of Riga nightlife goes back to my student years, many years ago, and that now I'm a family man and I'm Christian. And you could tell by the look on his face that he was surprised. He said, so what? I'm a Christian too. Um, it doesn't get in the way of enjoying Riga nightlife or something like that, Wh whatever he meant. I think my Greek flight companion had either forgotten what God is like or had never known him at all. Uh, one of the great reformers, John Calvin, insisted that what God is like should not even be the first question we ask. Indeed, we should be asking what kind of God he is. So you see, my Greek friend had forgotten that the creator God can be knowable. He has revealed himself in the scriptures. He's very much personal. I think we too need a constant reminder about that, that we can know God, what kind of God we worship and serve. We need a reminder about what kind of worship and service is acceptable to God. We very much need it. Well, Psalm 50 this morning is, is just that kind of reminder. The God of the Bible is the covenant Lord, a very personal God who has initiated and established a very personal relationships with his people. And as such God, he is worthy to be worshipped. God reveals himself here to be a spiritual and moral person, being. Therefore, he is to be worshipped in the spirit and in truth, you see God cares about our worship. Psalm 50 describes um, what, you, what we can say, um, worship gone wrong. Asaph, the author, is an overseer of the priests appointed by the King David himself. And now the priest's task 
was to make sure that the worship of God in Israel is according to God's rules. And what happens when worship of God is not in line with his rules? We see in our psalm, if you can uh, glance, verse 3 and 21, God is not silent. Verse 1, 7, and 16, God speaks. And again, verse 1 and verse 4, God cries out. God is not silent. He speaks when things go wrong. Now, when our children start to misbehave and keep ignoring our house order, which happens too frequently, we summon them um, for a, a family meeting. And so we sit them down, or we ourselves sit down too, so we remind them that, um, that that is what we do in our family and that is what we don't in our family. This is a kind of attitude that is acceptable in our family and this is the kind of attitude that is not acceptable. And so friends, in verses 1 to 6, we see something like that. God calls his own family gathering. Glance at verse Verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of the Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines, our God comes. He does not keep silent before him is devouring fire. Around him is mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. that He may judge his people, he says, gather to my to me, my faithful ones, who make a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. We see God, God has his own family gathering, but it's not a private meeting. Rather, it is a public court session. I have uh, told to some of you that I quite like a good legal drama. That's my probably favorite movie genre. The whole, you know, the whole thing with the evidence, the witnesses, and the sentence, it kind of resonates with me. I always appreciate the announcement as the judge enters the courtroom. So pardon my very flawed um, American accent. All rise, this court is... Uh, this court with the Honorable Judge Holmes presiding is now in session, or something like that. There happens to be American movies a, a lot. In. So I, I think in, in, in verses 1 to 6, we see the heavenly court in session. Whom do we see there? Glance at verse 6. The Lord God is the Honorable Judge. Verse 2, he shines forth. Verse 3, before him is a devouring fire. He's glorious. And then we have um, witnesses. Verse 1, God summons the whole earth and heavens. Again, verse 4. And finally, finally, we see the people of God on trial. Verse 4, that he may judge his people. All the eyes in heaven and on earth are on him, on God. But, but his eyes, his eyes are on his people. All can take their seats now. The judge, those charged, and the witnesses. The court may begin. 
Now, of course, of course, this is a picture, you see, for how can the heavens and the earth take their seats? That's interesting. And what an interesting couple of witnesses anyway. But that in itself is a reminder to Israel too. You might remember before Israel entered the promised land, God renewed the covenant with her. And see who are the two witnesses in, um, of God's covenant in Deuteronomy 30. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live. And, and now we see same two witnesses presiding in the heavenly court against the people of God. Why? Because God really cares about their worship. God cares about our worship of him. He still cares about whether we love him, whether we worship him in the spirit and truth. And so God speaks. He speaks firstly to those who have forgotten that God is spiritual. I think in, in verses 7 to 15, we have this, the first, first group of people who have forgotten that God is spiritual. And then God speaks to those who have got, forgotten that God is moral from verses 16 to 21. I think a different group of people, but we'll get to that. So firstly, God speaks to the, let's say, religious in verses 7 to 15. They have forgotten that God is spiritual. Now, before we look at what exactly is wrong here, I think it's worth seeing and remembering that God is speaking here to his covenant people the glance at verse 5 you see how God talks about them my faithful ones verse 7 my people and verse 8 God is their God I'm your God the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner wrote God doesn't want to pass a damning sentence on them instead he wants to bring truth to light and sinners to repentance. So the covenant Lord puts his covenant people on trial about their worship. But what exactly is wrong with their worship? Because I think it's not so easy to, to see instantly. After all, verse 8, they are still performing the same sacrifices that they did when they made the covenant with God in verse 5. So what is the problem with them? It appears that the problem with Israel's worship is with their attitude. They did the right things with the wrong attitude. They brought their sacrifices to God as if it in itself would please God as if God could be somehow bribed with these animals. They had forgotten that God is spiritual. There's nothing wrong with the sacrifices, you see. 
The problem is that Israel had forgotten that the sacrifices, they were not their idea. God came up with the sacrifices as the means to the forgiveness of their sins. So God isn't the one who needs the animals. They already belong to him. Glance at verse 9 and onwards. God says, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the sky. And all, the, um, and all that moves in the field is mine. God has all of it already. Well, it's like giving, um, trying to come up with a birthday present for someone who already has everything. Have you ever, ever found yourself in a situation like that? What do you give to that person? What, what do you buy to that person? All the person could possibly want, she, he or she already has obtained. And you kind of understand how silly it is to buy something or to give something just for the sake of buying, just for the sake of um, the gift. It would certainly reflect on how you view your relationships, right? It's kind of a, just, uh, you just tick it, just tick it for the sake of the gift. And friends, so it is with our relationships with God. There is nothing we can offer to God that he doesn't already have. You see, he's the mighty creator. He's the Lord. He's the rightful owner of everything. He already owns and has everything. Nor is he like the false gods. You know, the idols. He doesn't need food or drink. Look at verse 12 um, and, and 13. God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Again, how silly to think that the animal's sacrifice could bribe God. God says, if I were hungry... He uses humor to get across the point. I am totally different. I am other. I am not like man or created in the image of man, you know, like the idols. Now, of course, if God ever were hungry, he could take care of himself, right? He could instantly get Pakistan kebab or Italian pizza with French wine, Greek salads with Chinese noodles or Vietnamese noodles, uh, Indian curry with English tea, which is Indian tea, in fact, anyways. Uh, so if God would need something, he could take care of himself easily. You see, God doesn't need the sacrifices made by humans. Israel needs them. Because through the sacrifices, God reminds them who he is and what he does. He is their covenant Lord who has redeemed his people through the flesh and blood of the sacrificial lamb. Now let's pause for a moment and think about the implications uh, for us, how easy it is to, to continue doing the right things with the wrong attitude. Know that God is well aware 
of our hidden motivations and our hidden attitudes, even when we do the right things. Let's never assume that our deeds by themselves somehow please God or play any part in our righteousness before God, because they don't. I, I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it um, in, in question 62. There are a few of these catechisms in, in Reformed faith which are really, really helpful. So here's a question number 62. But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Why? Do you want to hear the answer? Good, good, very good. Uh, the answer, because the righteousness which can stand before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and wholly conformable to the divine law, while even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Did you hear this last sentence? Even our best works are defiled by sin. So I think the Catechism's answer puts a finger on the issue with the worship in our psalm. It casts light on our everyday life too. So for instance, God wants that his church gathers together, you know, on Sunday and midweek. In the letter to Hebrews, the author says, and God encourages us not to neglect our meeting together. All good. But let's not think for a second that we can please God by coming to church. Again, God wants us to live good lives and bless other people. In Ephesians, Paul says that God has created beforehand the good works that we should live in. And so how foolish it would be to think that we please God by our good works. He's done it. He's created those good works for us to live in already. Thirdly, God wants us to be strengthened by his word and by the sacraments. But it would be a grave mistake to think that reading the Bible or coming to the Lord's Supper scores the brownie points in, you know, God's heavenly journal or something. Why is such thinking problematic? Because it is an insult to God who alone is the giver of life. He gave his only son to be a complete and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Only Jesus' life was absolutely perfect according to God's divine law. Only Jesus is worthy to stand before the throne of God in God's heavenly court because of his perfect obedience, none other. And so we are accepted only because we are now in Christ. Friends, there is nothing we can do to bribe God to please him by our works, nothing. So what is the attitude that should accompany our good life? Because God wants us to live good life and do good works. 
But what is the attitude? Glance at verse 14, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. <coughs> thanksgiving is a response to God's grace and generosity, a true and heartfelt affirmation of God's love towards us. It appears Israel had forgotten it. There's a very interesting conversation between Jesus and the scribe in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Here's the scribe, and he asks uh, what seems to be a genuine question. Um, and here, it, what, what the question uh, sounds Which commandment is the most important of all? And so Jesus perceives it to be a genuine question and doesn't sort of ping-pong it. And he gives an answer in Mark 12, verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this, says Jesus. I mean, you can't, you can't add anything to that. I mean, it's perfect, isn't it? Except that the scribe does add. Here is the scribe's response in verse 32. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that there is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the hearts and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself. That's true. Is much more greater than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Isn't that an interesting addition? And Jesus commanded him. You see, the scribe in Mark's gospel seems to be understanding Psalm 50. God approves of the sacrificial service, providing it's done with the right motivation and attitude. Thanksgiving. So if you give to the gospel work, give cheerfully. Don't feel you are pressed to. Give cheerfully. If you serve your brothers and sisters, do it gladly. Do not do it begrudgingly. Do it gladly. Well, well, not if, but rather when, when you do that. Because the commandment comes with a promise in verse 15. I will deliver you as you call upon me in the day of your trouble. Our God, the covenant Lord, cares about our worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John, uh, John 4, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Israel indeed need a reminder that God is spiritual. We too need the reminder. And so let's offer thanksgiving as our sacrifice to God.
That's the only acceptable sacrifice. Now, if people in verses 7 to 15 needed a reminder that God is spiritual, then people in verses 16 to 21 need a reminder that God is moral. And so we have people to whom God speaks and whom he calls um, the wicked. Glance at verse 16. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to cite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames Deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Just notice the difference between these two groups of people. The people in verse 7 to 15 are being saved. But we can't say that about the people in verses 16 to 21. God doesn't anywhere refer to them as my faithful or my people. Or God doesn't call himself your God. I will deliver you. God doesn't speak here to the people who want to live for him, but are just not able to do that, not able to meet God's demands or even their own expectations about their lives. God speaks here to the complacent, to the self-confident, the self-righteous. You could say churchgoers who think they can join evil with worship. Hence, God calls them wicked. Now, what is the portrait of those people? They outwardly belong to the assembly. They belong to the church. They know what God has said. They have even learned how to speak, and they have learned how to act. But God knows their thoughts and their hearts. Look again at verse 16. But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant? On your lips. God is talking about the people who belong to church but openly ridicule his moral will. Uh, glance verse 17 such people hate discipline. Verse 18 onwards they break the eighth, the seventh, and the ninth commandment. They steal, they covet their neighbor's wife. They lie and they bear false witness. Now, it's almost inconceivable, right, that such people should belong to the church. Well, is it inconceivable? I think there are plenty of people who call themselves Christian, but in fact dishonor God with their lives. For them, God's grace is so wide and so inclusive that they see no problem with combining it with 
immoral lifestyle. They say love is love. They say love wins in the court um, about the same-sex relationships or adulterous relationships, but not in the heavenly court where, where uh, the covenant Lord is judge. You see, to them, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I believe it was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, said, who had labeled such thinking as cheap grace. He calls it cheap grace. Cheap grace says, oh, it doesn't matter how I live. God has it covered. He, you know, he, is, he is the savior. He will clean it up. It doesn't matter how I live. And such people have forgotten that God is moral. You see, they want Jesus as their savior. They say Jesus is savior without having Jesus as their Lord. But you can't have one without another. Jesus is both savior and Lord. Now, I want to be careful in applying this, my friends. I actually do believe that verses 16 to 20 are not primarily for the church, his covenant people, his beloved ones, his, his, his people on Sunday. They're not primarily for them. You know, verse 22 summarizes God's stark warning to the wicked. There is, there'll be no delivery, but God doesn't speak so to his covenant people. Nevertheless, I think we should hear this. We should fearfully learn never to presume on God's kindness. I think there's a wisdom why God's people need to hear the sentence for the wicked so that they would never slip, never slip on this, on this wide road, as Jesus says. Let's remember what kind of God he is. He's mighty one. He's the Lord, the judge of everyone. He shines forth in perfection and beauty. If someone thinks he or she can lead a double life, they are in trouble. If someone thinks they can you know, come to church, go to church um, on Sunday and, and then sleep around on or bring other disgrace on the church midweek, they are in trouble. Jesus won't help. You see, Jesus, who is not our Lord, will not be our Savior. It's a stark warning. And so what's, what's left for us? Is there any encouragement? Of course there is. Thanksgiving. We should continue giving thanks, trusting that Jesus, uh, in Jesus, God has shown us his salvation. Jesus is our true redeemer and our Lord. He has forgiven our sins. You see, he has washed us clean by his blood on the cross. We can only present our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul says, holy and acceptable to God because of his mercies. 
because of the mercies of God. You see, we can only serve moral God because we have been redeemed from our old ways in no other way. And we can only worship God spiritually because we are now in Christ. And so let me close with Paul's words to the church in Rome who have learned these things. Here's words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Indeed, our loving Heavenly Father, we, we desperately need to know and remember what kind of God you are. You are our glorious Savior, but you are also our awesome Lord and Judge. And so, Father, please, please help us, your beloved people, your covenant people, remember that you are a spiritual God who seeks people who worship him in spirit and truth. Please guard us from legalism, thinking that we would ever be able to please you or bring you something on our own. We can't. And so thank you that only in Jesus, because of his perfect life and perfect death on a cross, we are acceptable you and we can please you by our sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, Father, please grow our gratefulness. Grow us in the ability to live a life of thanksgiving daily. We confess how hard it is, how, how grumpy we often are. We ask for your help. And Father, as we see your warnings to the wicked, to those who think that they combine worship with wickedness and evil, with immoral life, be a stark warning to us that we would always remember that you are a moral God who will keep us accountable of how we live in light of your wonderful and great mercies. So, Father, please encourage us that you are indeed our Savior and Deliverer as we cling to you by faith and as we trust your mercies and live a life of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.